2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read uh, not just our uh, verses that will be the main focus, but the, the section uh, of Scripture starting in chapter 3, verse 10, read through chapter 4, verse 5. And, and I really want you to watch for how often the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, the young pastor, Focus on the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul's not only talking to Timothy, but all of us, each of us, the church. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, we who are followers of Christ know the incredible importance of your word as the foundation for life and for faith and for everything that we do. Certainly this morning as we have heard that 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 news of Peter Webb and his homegoing, for we are confident that he knew you. And hearing the, the audible gasp, Lord, it pierced our hurts our hearts because sin does hurt and the effects of sin death 
they rivet us with grief and pain. But thank you, Lord, because your word is true. It is the foundation upon which we build our lives that we are looking forward to that day when everything will be restored because of what Jesus did on the cross and his death and his burial and resurrection. And someday we will share in that life of eternity with Peter and with all others who have loved your appearing. So, Father, help us this, this morning to consider um, briefly, and that's all we can do, briefly, this study into why the Scriptures alone are so important for our foundation and for our guidance in our lives in Christ. We thank you, praise you, and ask you to give us all, from the youngest to the oldest, hearing hearts today, and, and also the, the desire to respond to what you reveal to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions you have to ask yourself when you're doing a study of the Word of God, the Bible, Scripture, is this. Why throughout history have people been willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice and die for the message of Jesus Christ and for the salvation that he brings. Let's go one step further. That is a message found only, hear me now, only in the Bible. Let's go back to the 1400s, the 1500s, when once again, church was in, obviously we know this, was in a period of darkness, but people began to read the Word again. They began to read it in the original languages, in the original texts, and they began to recover that message that we are studying over the next several weeks, the message of the solas of the faith. We're going to review that in just a minute. But the interesting thing was that it wasn't pagans and it wasn't other religious groups outside of Christianity that brought such intense persecution to those people that were recovering the message of the gospel. It was the church that was in power at that time. Now somehow, I know it's a stretch, but I want you to transport yourself back to that time, particularly in the 1500s. And imagine that you had come under the teaching that the Bible alone was your foundation for everything in your life. And one night at your home, your family was interrupted by authorities from the local established church who broke in, who came and who arrested you. And here's what they told you. You will suffer persecution. You're going to suffer death unless you do this one little thing. All you have to do is recant. That means turn your back on the teaching that you've been putting forward that the gospel is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Some did recant. You go back and study the history of that time. Some did recant. 
many did not. Now, this let, let me stop right here. And, and I, I labored over this this morning. Should you teach? I'm not going to get into graphic details. I may mention a, a few things in a few moments. But parents, grandparents, should you teach your children about persecution against Christians? And I'm not talking about just what happened in history. I'm talking about things that are going on right now. Several of you responded vigorously, and I'm glad. The answer is yes. Why should you teach your children and your grandchildren about persecution? Because, number one, it's real. It is going on right now. In fact, this very moment. Number two, it helps your children to understand that they are connected to a global Christian family. And sometimes in our individualism in this country, we forget about that. I don't think it's just our country. I think it's human nature. We tend to be individualistic. And we forget that we are connected to a global Christian family. But also, here, here's probably the most important reason why you ought to teach your children about persecution and suffering today because it allows them to see the seriousness of following Christ. Let's go back to an overview. I just mentioned those things a minute ago. But in case you came in today and this is the first time you've been here, normally we go through verse by verse a book of the Bible. That's the, the normal way we do things. But I... For, for some time have been thinking that it would be very beneficial for us to go back and I'll explain certain terms but for us to go back and to examine some of the fundamentals some of the foundations some of the, and I'll use this word the essentials of our faith I would describe these as things for which we will go to the mat things for which we are willing to die. And so for the next several weeks, we will be discussing what the Reformers, uh, out of their, their study and their conviction, that they begin to preach. They're known as the five solas. That's Latin for alone. But let me just give you some insight into this. The, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the church that was in power at that time, also believe in grace. A lot of people don't, don't understand that. They believed in grace, through faith, in Christ, according to Scripture, and for God's glory. The thing that set the Reformers apart and that sets us apart today was the addition of that little word, that important word, alone. They said, no, it is not okay to add anything to God's undeserved, unmerited favor or grace. It's not okay to say it's belief in Jesus Christ plus something else. It's not okay to believe in Jesus plus someone else, such as Mary or the saints. It's not okay to believe that we can add anything to Scripture. It is Scripture alone that serves as our foundation. And nothing but the glory of God will 
do. So, sola scriptura was simply the radical message of a God, listen to this, a God who does all the saving and leaves nothing for man to claim on his own as his contribution in order to gain God's favor. And since that time, others have picked up on that. In the 1700s, an era of some wonderful hymn writing. Do any of you remember the old song by Augustus Toplady? Isn't that a great name? Rock of Ages. If you have not gone back and, and, and sung that song or read that song recently, just Google the lyrics to that song. And I think the third verse is when he starts out by saying these words, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross. I clean. Folks, the five solos are nothing more than the message of the unmerited free grace of God given to undeserving sinners like you and like me. Now, let me go back and ask that question of you. If you'd been living back then and the religious authorities came to your house, how firmly would you hold on to, if you had the scriptures or at least the belief in your heart, and then let me upgrade that and bring you up to today. And let me ask you, students, look at me for a minute. People all over, just, just look at me for a minute. And let me ask you, how precious is the Word of God to you today? You are not in danger going home this afternoon and having somebody break into your house, burst into your house, and stealing your Bible. I changed that. Uh, from a minute ago, bursting into your house and taking your Bible and arresting you. But I dare say that if your house is broken into, probably the last thing they would take is your Bible. Would you recant today if you were given the chance? Or would you choose to die for your belief? Let me just go back. I told you you ought to... Uh, tell your children about some of these things. I, uh, I, ha I had an incredible picture I was going to show, and I thought, no, e even though it was a woodcut from the book, the old book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody familiar with that? George Fox wrote the book that goes all the way back to the times of the apostles and the chronicles, how the apostles, some by the Bible, and some according to tradition, how they died, and then the martyrs up to his present day. And so the book is filled with woodcuts, actual pictures. Do you realize that in England, for this message, in England, I'm not talking about some way foreign country that we normally conjure up in our minds. In the 1500s in England, around 300 people, most of them were burned at the stake for these beliefs. Some of them were hanged, some drawn and quartered. Pass over that. You can 
explain that when your children are old enough. For these kinds of convictions, for the conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. And because this ran counter to the church of that day, it was a clash. Remember last week when we were talking about a clash of worldviews? And that's what it was. Basically, it was a clash between what is man-centered and what is God-centered in its approach to faith. So the question is, is that what we see today? Is that what we see in our church? The kind of gripping onto the foundation of God's Word as precious. Precious not only in our church, but precious in your life. Or do we take it for granted? Let me help you with the definition uh, of what sola scriptura looks like. I'm going to go back to uh, uh, an older confession, not nearly as old as the 1500s but go back into the 1700s, late 1700s, to a Baptist confession of faith which described the Word of God, the essence of sola scriptura. This is called the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. And let's look at, uh, oh, well, I thought I skipped over that, but I didn't. That, this is obviously not the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Uh, I put that in there this morning. I thought I took it out, but I, I'll just go ahead and share that with you. This was a council, the Council of Trent. Again, this is not just a history lesson, but it gives you the context into when I, I was telling you a minute ago that uh, these persecutions in England took place. The Catholic Church had a council to answer the reformers and their heresy. It was proclaimed heresy, the five souls. And they have different canons. That's just a teaching. It, it, it's a, that's a law. Here was one of the laws that they came up with. It was called Canon Number Nine. Now, now look at this, because this is how they evaluated. This is how they would have evaluated you. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. It was based on that kind of a worldview where they could actually burn people at the stakes. In fact, I was reading one of those, just as an aside, uh, uh, a young man. It's recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was, he was barely 15 years old and yet would not repent. now let's go on to the Philadelphia Confession of Faith after all of that goodness. Here's what sola scriptura basically means. Here, here it is. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory. Now let me just stop and tell you, students, if, if you're looking for God's Word to give you the answers for your math test, you're not going to find it there. So it, it, it doesn't cover every detail in our lives, but in terms of everything necessary for the glory of God, man's salvation, faith, life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, into which nothing at any time is to be added 
whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, I know that that's wordy. That's a mouthful. But do you see why every sentence and phrase is so vitally important? To the attitude that it is Scripture alone. It is this book alone, not the traditions of men. We're not talking about just Roman Catholic traditions. We're talking about Baptist traditions. And, and my goodness, all of the things that are around us today in our culture, the new revelations, this goes back. Joseph Smith had new revelations. Those things are to be rejected because they have added to Scripture. Anything that adds to or takes away in addition to the traditions of man. Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith, it became a Baptist tradition uh, as well in Keech's Catechism. Most of you know this. Starts out with a couple of questions. By the way, this is the way they used to teach their kids. Straight out of the Scriptures. And they would have Scriptures lined up with it. What is the chief end and purpose of man? You know the answer to that. The chief end and purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Question number two is this. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The answer is the Word of God. Contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. You have three things, four things on your outline as to why this is important. Let me run through those and then we're going to go to a passage of Scripture and try to apply this in our own life. Why is this so important? Here's the first reason. And I'll have several slides up for each one of these points with pretty much nothing but Scripture. I'll, I'll speak to these, but the Scriptures you, you need to know. And, and I had to be very selective. Because the proof for these things, it's all through Scripture. Here's the first one. Scripture alone is inerrant and infallible. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, that word, breathed out by God, and I know this is an internal argument. This is an argument that Scripture makes for itself. But the Bible claims that it is God's Word. If the Bible claims it, it is either true or it is not true. If it's not true, then just throw the whole thing away. Why are we meeting on Sunday morning? It's a nice day out. We could be at the Oklahoma State Fair. But you have come together, at least, I would say the vast majority of you, if not every one of you, because you believe the Scripture alone is inerrant and it's infallible. That means that this book is literally breathed out. It's not just that he inspired people to write it, he breathed it out and then recorded it. Jesus said this, and I think both of these verses go together so that you can see that all of Scripture is inerrant, all of Scripture is infallible, but every word is inspired. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that comes out of the mouth of God. Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures or the power of God. And then Jesus said this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth, your word of truth. The Bible says clearly of itself, that all Scripture and every word of Scripture is God-breathed. And because of that, that leads to a second thing you see there on your outline. Scripture alone is reliable and it is powerful. Now, let me just stop here as you're writing down some of those Scripture references. I am not trying to build an apologetic for you. There are other people that have done much better job. And I've looked at them, I've looked at the rebuttals and all of the rest of that. I'm not trying to build an apologetic for you about the Word of God being totally inerrant, infallible, being the Word of God, other than through using God's Word alone. One of the reasons why I, I find this to be very interesting, that Jesus, in fact, I don't see anybody in the Scriptures that did this. Jesus never tried to prove the Word of God. He just used it. And He accepted it as true and as 100% accurate. And if you understand this, not only adults, but a lot of times I'll swing over to the, to the students because there will come a time when your faith in the Word of God is going to be challenged. Just remember when it is about certain things like evolution. People will say to you, oh, come on, there was no literal Adam and Eve. Well, again, you're forced into accepting the words of Jesus when he accepted as true the creation of Adam and Eve. Have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, once again, the logic here is that Jesus either is telling us the truth or he is not or he is misinformed. And in those last two things, then he can't be trusted for anything. Jesus never lied. He told us the truth about Adam and Eve. He also told us the truth about the flood. Now again, I would say that, that in some situations, you're going to be challenged about a universal flood. Come on. There was no such thing as a universal flood that covered the earth. And yet, Jesus said, the day of Noah, when he entered the ark, and when they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all Jesus took that as a fact, as literally true. Is Judah written in here? I, you know, this weekend was our... Uh, I, I hope Judah doesn't mind me uh, telling something. I, it was great. This last weekend was our Flee the City, father-son, grandfather-grandson outing. I see several of you here who attended that, you're still kind of like this. 
trying to catch up on your sleep. But I learned about these little guys. By the way, there were little guys, real little guys, all the way up to, I think our oldest son there was 43, I believe. Right? Jonathan? Okay. And we just had a great time. But you, you, you learn things about just listening to conversation. Now, some, of, some children are very quiet. Others are more verbal. And I learned something about Judah that one of his favorite words is literal. Judah, right? And he, he would be animated, he'd be talking, he'd say, and I can't remember exactly the context, he'd be talking, he'd say, this is literal. How old is Judah? Six. A six-year-old using the word literal? I thought, this, this is so cool, I've got to use this tomorrow as a sermon illustration. Okay, Judah, I want you to know something. The word literally is a good word. When Jesus talked about Adam and Eve and the flood and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, it was, help me out, Judah, literally true. You can take it to the bank. And people feel sorry for us that we have a firm foundation. When all they've got to, to, to build their belief structures on, I shared with you last week, I feel sorry for people when I, I ask them their point of view. What is your worldview? How do you see things? What's the lens through which you see life? And a lot of times they've never even thought about it. They have no foundation other than maybe a teacher or maybe a parent or it's what they think. Those are shifting sands. That's why Scripture alone is what we need to take to the bank. So Scripture is reliable. It is literally true. You got that? And it is also powerful for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's add one more to that. Where Step back and look in Isaiah. God said, my word will never return to me. Some of you parents and you grandparents who have strained loved ones, this ought to be an encouragement. I'm not saying that they will always return let me tell you something. If you have put the Word of God into their lives, it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. It will succeed because it is alone. Scripture alone is reliable and powerful. Let's go on to the third one. Scripture alone is indestructible. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus makes this incredible word. Don't, don't think I, I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, look at this part, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot. In, in the Hebrew, there were these little, little marks that went with the vowels. And he said not one of those will pass away. Not even, not just the word itself, but even the little marks around them will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
You know, there was a saying, and I, I, I love this, from a commentator of another day, H.L. Hastings, that the Bible is an anvil upon which many hammers have been worn out. He said it like this, infidels of 1,800 years, who lived in the 1800s, have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as a solid rock. Stop there. By the way, what is the best-selling book of all time? Hands down. It's estimated that there are some six billion copies of the Bible that exist today. Go to the New York Times bestseller list. I went to several bestseller lists last week to try to find this out. Do you know that on none of those lists was the Bible mentioned? The Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, was listed as the best-selling book of all time. Several millions of copies. The Bible annually sells in the something like six, seven hundred million copies. Not even close. Now, by the way, there are two other books that are probably close. Uh, uh, well, when I say close, it's like this. Closer than secular books. And guess what they are? The Quran... Pilgrim's Progress is right up there. Bunyan's classic work. But the Quran and Mao's book called The Little Red Book. Now think about it. Nobody forces you to buy a Bible. How many of you in this church have more than one copy of the Bible? Nobody forced you to buy it, did they? In those countries, people are politically pressured and religiously pressured to own a copy of those books. Not to buy it. Circulation increases. It is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults. I like the way he puts it. I've heard the anvil and the hammer before with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of the That's pretty good. The Bible alone is indestructible. Let's look at the last thing. And it could be that this is more important. I, I don't know. I, I'm just going to put this up as... I am going to say it's even more important than the Bible being an error. It is an error. But I think when it comes down to the bottom line for us, knowing that the Bible alone is sufficient, I said it before, it's not going to give you answers to your math with. But it is going to give you everything you need for faith and for life and what is going on in your life, whether it's good or whether it's bad. I was thinking about this today. I tell you what, I wish, I really do. I was sitting there thinking this morning in our ABF class. If you're 
not around, you don't know our lingo, our jargon. ABF means Sunday School of Death. Adult Bible Fellowship. And our students had their Sunday school. But I was sitting there at the end of the class. Jan, I think you would agree with me. I, I was sitting there thinking, I wish the whole church would have been our, our ABF class. I, I really do. The discussion, I, how far did you get into your lesson? Not very far. Because there was just such this, this exchange. And you know what people were, were, were exchanging? Not just their ideas. They were quoting scripture and they were talking about the scriptural ideas and, and things about living the, 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 the Christian life in the midst of our culture. And I was sitting there thinking, wow. That, that is just incredible. That's what ought to be going on with all of us because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It's sufficient. Jesus thought so. He said, look, some, some people said to him, you know what? If a person is raised from the dead, then they'll believe. They'll believe a miracle like that. He said, no, they've got, the, they've got the Bible. They've got Moses and the prophets, and if they don't listen to that as true, they won't even listen if someone is raised from the dead. So, how do you apply it? What difference can it make in your life? I want to wait and walk you through a, a passage of Scripture. I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Slide your finger down. I, I hope, uh, uh, you know, I love it when I look over and see the students turning, flipping notes, flipping their, their Bibles open on their, their phone, I'm assuming. And all of you, I, I, I need you to follow me through this. I'm going to give you, and this is an incredible psalm. Just read through Psalm 119. It's all about the Word. 176 verses arranged in 22 stanzas. And we're going to go to the second stanza, which begins in verse 9. And I want, I'm going to tell you what words to circle. We're going to walk through this very quickly. But, but really, what's the application of the fact that Scripture alone is so important? Here's the reason. And the psalmist asked this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's more than just young men young women. That's more than just physical sexual purity. That's a purity in all of life, okay? So the question is, how can the Word of God direct me? And here are about eight things that I'm going to run through very, very quickly. Let's look at verse 9. We're going to walk through this, and I'm going to tell you to circle certain things in these verses that answer the question, how can you keep your way straight? How can you keep your way pure? Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By, circle this next word, guarding. Or keeping, some translations will say. By guarding or keeping it according to your word. Listen to me. Don't look in the wrong places to guide your life. 
Don't look to yourself. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. Don't look to your peers. Because sometimes that can be false guidance. Listen to me here. Don't ultimately look even to your parents or even church leaders. I want to be careful. Obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your leaders. Okay? But if they tell you something that's opposite of the word, you follow the word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding or keeping it according to the word. Verse 10. With my, circle these words, whole heart, I, and then circle the word, seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandment. Seek the Lord with a whole heart. Be careful to not let your allegiance be divided between God and someone or something else. Jesus reminds us we can only serve one master. We can't serve two. And please remember this. We've said this over and over again. Even good things that are not God's things can be an enemy to the best thing. So, seek the Lord with your whole heart. Third thing, verse 11. I have circled the word stored up. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that word can also be hidden. Treasure. This is more than just memorizing. You can have God's Word in your head, which is good and it's important, but you need to treasure God's Word in your heart so that when moments of temptations come, you can take every thought captive, you can compare it with what God says because you know it, it's in your heart, and you can choose wisely to obey God and not obey people. Or rather, are you hearing David? We've got keep God's Word. Seek God's Word with your whole heart. Treasure God's Word in your heart. Verse 12, blessed are you, O God. Circle the word teach. Teach me your statutes. Desire to learn God's Word. I applaud you, Heritage. That's why you're here today. Now, note before David asked the Lord to teach him, said, Blessed are you, O Lord. David already knew God's Word. And this is what's so key. A lot of times I, I'm, I'm directing these things to the students. I want them to get a good grounding foundation and to move on. But even when people are like us that are older, okay, what David is saying, even though you know God's Word, keep growing in it. Ask the Lord to continue to teach you. Verse 13, with my lips I, circle, declare all the rules of your mouth. You truly desire to keep God's word, seek him wholeheartedly to avoid sin. If you're desiring to grow in the knowledge of God's word, you're not going to want to keep it to yourself. It's too wonderful. You want to tell others. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies I, circle the word delight or rejoice as much 
as in all riches. You will recognize the surpassing value of God's word. Nothing is as valuable. Now, let me stop and apply. How many of you agree with that? That there's nothing more valuable than God's Word? Do I have any agreement among the students that they decide? I don't want to get a chant started. I love God's Word. Yes, I do. How about you? I'm not going to do that. Okay, here, here's the obvious application. I, this is not meant to throw guilt. It's meant to, to ask you to evaluate. If you say God's Word is precious to you, is more valuable than anything else, then why don't you read it more? I just throw that out. And, and I, I'm guessing that, that the majority of you do read His Word and love His Word. But can you ever read too much? God's Word? Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Circle the word meditate and fix my eyes on your ways. Again, it's more than hearing, more than reading, more than learning, more than memorizing. In your quiet moments, if you think about what God's word is. Then verse 16, I will circle the word delight. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget Again, the obvious implication, if a few moments ago you said, yes, I will, I will not recant. I will learn to suffer and even die for God's word. Will you live it for right now? Now, that's what you do, but I don't want to end on that. Is there anyone who has ever done these eight things Okay, that's not a trick question. But the way most of us answer it is, no, no man could ever do that perfectly. Let me let you in on a little secret. There was a man who did that perfectly. While we, are, we affirm that we need to, to, to press on into that, people, we do not depend on how well we read God's Word for our salvation. This is a picture of what Jesus has done. The fact that we need to be in Jesus. I said a minute, I wasn't trying to heap guilt on you. You will have no guilt if you are in Christ because He, on Calvary's cross, has taken the guilt of your sins and nailed them to the cross. The place you need to start is the gospel. You will need the gospel of Christ. And out of that, in his word. Scripture alone. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us. Allow it, Lord, to speak to us. Help us to respond to you. God, if there's anyone today who is not savingly joined to Christ, I pray that that person would not be able to leave without speaking to someone make sure of his or her eternal salvation. For those of us who know you, may we press on to do more than just believe Scripture.
Sola Scriptura as an academic exercise, but that we may respond to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to sing, and then after that, have a benediction and be dismissed. So let's stand and let's sing together.